I wondered, Sam. Um, again, it's good to be here this morning. It is a privilege to stand before you and to have a part in this worship service, this assembly together. Um, as I was thinking about what to say as we began, I, I wanted to just, I want to say that there are a lot of church bodies in the world. And there are a lot of people meeting in similar settings and going through the various acts of worship that we've gone through this morning. And a lot of those places are very dear to our hearts, right? It, we can think of places that maybe if we were to visit today that we would enjoy visiting. But I'd, I'd rather be here than anywhere else. And I'm thankful to have this church family. I'm thankful that we're a part of it together, that we can serve God. I was excited to see Bob and excited to get the note. So excited I didn't tell you what the note said. I just told you I got the note. The note expressed thanksgiving for prayers, food, and love shown to Bob during uh, his surgery and recovery time, which is actually still ongoing despite the fact that he's sitting in the assembly this morning. And so I didn't want the service to go by without mentioning that. He did give a note, not just to tell us he was here, but to convey a message. And so I wanted to share that message with you uh, this morning. You know, when we read our Bibles, there are passages and concepts that can, on the surface, seem contradictory. We might read a passage in one gospel and then read a passage in another gospel and wonder how those two thoughts could be compatible with one another. Now, we always find, if we will study long enough and be honest in our discussion, that there is no contradiction, right? The Bible never says one thing and then says something else so as to contradict itself, yet it might appear that way. It's not our purpose this morning to investigate those passages, but, but you might before have read Matthew 7 and verse 1 that we're not to judge and then read John 7 and verse 24 where it says we are to judge. And so people often pit those verses against one another without proper contextual study. We might be misled to believe that maybe there's a conflict in Scripture Another occasion is in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus said that we should do our good works that men might see God and glorify him. And yet one chapter later he says, don't practice your righteousness to be seen of men. And without, again, contextual study and honesty, we might see a, a, a compromise in, in those two thoughts. Perhaps one more perplexing one is when Jesus proclaimed that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And then Paul writes this great treaties on the church and says that Jesus not only made peace, he is our peace. And so there are some passages of scripture that leave us confounded somewhat, that make us scratch our heads and dig deeper and study more. And then there are other passages that really don't require as much in-depth study, but they still seem to be almost an impossibility. We read them and we think, how does that work? How does that happen? How can that be true? Not that we, that we disbelieve or want to reject, but we, we just don't see the connection. Jesus said that the first will be last and the last will be first, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 16, that, that he would bring those down from their thrones and he would exalt those who were humble or, as we read in our scripture reading in James 4 and verse 10, that God will, humble, will, will exalt the humble. You ever stop to ask how that works? What that looks like? Because the way our world presents humility, and sometimes the way we carry ourselves in humility, is not exalted at all. It's very much downtrodden. 
it's very much a, a defeated outlook and, and, and mindset. And I have to live that way and in and, and hopes that maybe one day God will lift me up. In fact, sometimes we only put the exaltation part of humility in eternity. That I live here humble and that there he exalts me. But I think the Bible teaches more than that. That there is a, a way to live exalted in this life while still being humble. Now, I, I may not need a lot of in-depth study to get that. What I may need is example. Show me somewhere in someone's life that that actually worked. That that actually happened. And so I invite you to Acts chapter 6 this morning to look with me for a moment at the last day in the life of Stephen. And in the last day of Stephen's life, he was a man who showed humility and yet was exalted. Now, we'll do this a little backwards this morning. We'll look first at the fact that he was exalted, just briefly. That should not be a question to us. Stephen was an exalted man. In fact, consider the introduction of Stephen in Scripture. Stephen is given to us his story on the pages of two chapters in God's Word. Now, you would think, being the first Christian martyr, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, and the way that we sometimes mention him, that he would have been one who lived throughout the book of Acts, throughout the time of the early church, had traveled a great distance and made a great difference. But the reality of it is, is we know one thing about him and then one day about him is all we know. You see, his introduction is that when the disciples needed seven men to step in and handle a problem in the early church, of all the men they could have chosen, Stephen was one of the seven. That's pretty profound, don't you think? We are people who like to rank and sort and file based on importance and significance. Who's the greatest? Who's the most popular? Which movie's the best? Which song's number one? Here are seven men needed to be chosen, and Stephen's among them. Just the very introduction of him in Scripture in those first seven verses of Acts chapter 6 detailed to us that he was an exalted man. Not just his introduction, his name. His name comes from the Greek term for crown. We talk about the Stephanus crown, the crown of life that will be given to those who, who win the race, who finish the race. Not the, not the royal crown, not the ruling and reigning crown, but, but the victor's crown. And it can be given to any man and every man who wins the race, James 1 and verse 12. And his name means crown or one who is crowned. By that very definition, as we see it in Scripture, Stephen was a man who was exalted. But consider his legacy. His legacy. The first Christian martyr. The first man to die for the cause of Christ outside of Christ himself. You see, before Herod killed James, before Paul's departure was at hand, before John was exiled to Patmos, Stephen was stoned by no doubt some of the same mob that took Jesus and put him on the cross. His legacy, his name, his introduction all speak to his exaltation. So what about his life reveals that to us? What about his life shows us how we can be exalted, and in particular, how is that life seen as humble? What we want to do is we want to pick up there in, in our text in chapter 6 and verse 8. And if you've, 
ever read chapter 6 and 7, you'll know that chapter 6 is very short and chapter 7 is very long. We're going to look at the rest of 6 and all of 7, so we can't read all the passages this morning together. We can look at three aspects of Stephen's life that showed humility. And by the way, as we look at them, I'll give you a hint where they fall. There are ways in which Stephen looked like Jesus. He mirrored and, 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 and portrayed Christ in a time when Christ was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in these three areas, three very quickly, we will see a man who lived humbly, and by virtue of that, God exalted him. Number one, Stephen lived humble in life. He lived humble in life. I mentioned that chapter 6, verse 8, through the end of chapter 7, is the last day of Stephen's life. One man called it the day that Stephen stood tall. I like the picture, because he did. But in his standing tall, in his being bold, he was a man who lived a life of humility. Now, the trajectory of Stephen's life was leading him on a collision course that, that followed the last hours of the life of Christ. If you have time to read verses 8 through 15 in detail, notice the number of comparisons that could be made between the, the last day of Stephen's life and the last day of the life of our Lord before his crucifixion. Stephen was a man that was argued with by the leaders, verse 9 says specifically. He was a man that, that had others induce false witnesses against him, verse 11, that stirred up the people against him, verse 12, that dragged him into court, verse 13, and that testified falsely before the council, verse 14. All of that said about Stephen. You could take out the passage references. Doesn't that sound like the arrest and betrayal and trial of Jesus? Did he suffer those same things? But it's not that aspect of, of, of Stephen's life that I want you to consider this morning. It's, it's the other things that are said. It's the other things that are done. You see, all of these things led to Stephen's death. Now, I'm going to assume that we knew before we started this morning, and I know that's a bad assumption, that Stephen dies. Okay, I'm going to assume that we knew that. I say that because there was a new convert on one occasion who was helping me teach a, a fifth and sixth grade class in the book of Acts. And we were studying through, and, and we were in chapter 6, and we were talking about this, these men who were selected to, to serve in, in these, these Grecian widows and let the apostles continue their work. And I said to those fifth and sixth graders, now you know that this is the same Stephen who dies in chapter 7. And the new convert kind of slammed the table and said, well, thanks for ruining it for me. He didn't even know at this point. He hadn't read past chapter 6. He didn't know Stephen died. I'm going to assume we know that, all right? But what, how did he live leading up to that? How did he live? What is, how does the Bible describe him? And again, it's, it's a few short verses in 8 through 14, but it says a lot about him. Especially, look at verse 8. The Bible says that in verse 8 that Stephen was a man full of grace. Full of grace. Now, I read John chapter 1 and verse 14, and Jesus came as one who was full of grace and grace truth. Stephen was like the Lord. I don't know exactly what that looked like in Stephen's life because I only get one day, right? Only get a small window. Does it mean he was forgiving and loving and compassionate? Does it mean that he was always bold and, and, and forceful with truth as he was in this chapter? Does it mean that his disposition warmed to people? In fact, that word for grace in the Greek is not 
only a Bible word. It was used in their everyday vocabulary, even before the New Testament, to mean someone who was charming, someone who was approachable. If you were a person who was gracious, then people felt comfortable in your presence. Jesus was that way, wasn't he? That's why they came from all over, to sit at his feet. That's why he was able to to dine in homes of, of people that he had just met, because he had a gracious spirit about him. Stephen was a man full of grace and full of power. Full of power. In fact, if if you keep reading verse 8, it says that he was full of power and was performing great wonders and signs among the people. You know, if you go back a few chapters in Acts and you look at Acts 2.22, that's almost verbatim the description of Jesus before the people. That he was a man approved among them through signs and wonders. This man was like Jesus. In fact, this text indicates to us that he was humble even in his use of power. We say all of the time that Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. He had the power to reverse course and not suffer the death on the cross. But guess what? So did Stephen at his stoning. If he was a man full of power, he could have done something to alter his state before those stones took his life. But even in the power, he exhibited and illustrated humility. He shared in the wisdom of Christ, verse 10. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Remember what said of Jesus in John chapter 7 and verse 46, that never a man spoke like this man. There was something different about him. He also shared in the rejection of Christ, and we've gone through that that laundry list of things that he suffered. I don't know what it was, but they saw something different in Stephen. Look at the end of the, of the, of the text in verse six, in chapter 6. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. You know, there are certain things in Scripture that I would love to be able to explain, but unless you were there, I'm not sure you can explain it. There's, there's no commentary given to this. It's just what they saw. But all of those things leading up to it, that full of grace, full of power, a man of great wisdom and great humility, when they saw him, they saw something different. Why? Because he was a man who was humble in life, just like Jesus. Number two, Stephen was a man who was humble in speech. He was a man who was humble in speech. Now, this actually takes up the bulk of these two chapters. His speech before the council begins in verse 2 of chapter 7 and goes all the way through verse 53. It's that large section of scripture that we won't be able to fully investigate and look at this morning. Now, when we think about the speech that, that he told and the way that he presented himself, humble may not be the way we generally describe it. In fact, if I were to ask you to describe, if you've read Acts chapter 7 and I were to say, describe the demeanor and the attitude and the approach of Stephen, here are some words that would probably come to mind. Blunt, to the point, abrasive, in your face, right? I mean, if you've read the, if you've read the story, he tells them the same thing Peter told his crowd in Acts 2, this one Jesus, you've killed him. Why, why would we use that language to describe it? Well, if, if time permitted, we, we could dig deeper. But let me, just tell you, let me just say this. Stephen attacked in its content some very sacred themes and thoughts 
of the Jews of his day. Sometimes we call them sacred cows. Uh, Maybe we've heard that term and used that term before. The idea of a sacred cow religiously is an idea or a practice that, that, that that is so entrenched that you dare challenge it. In fact, if you did challenge it, you would sort of be brushed off because no one's going to give that up. No one's going to let go of that. There were three specific sacred cows of the Israelites that, that Stephen addressed and, if, for lack of a better term, slaughtered on the altar of this sermon that he preached. One was that the land equaled blessing. That's what they had always thought. They had been told through Abraham that God would bless them with a nation, with a land. And so as long as they were in the land, as long as they were living in Palestine, that they were blessed. What's interesting about it is if you follow through that that opening large section, he debunks that by three just easy examples. He says Abraham never had the inheritance. He lived in a little while, but he never had the inheritance, and yet he was blessed maybe above all the patriarchs. And then there's Jacob and others, and all they ever owned in the land was a tomb. And yet God blessed them immensely. And then Moses actually was blessed of God in a place outside the promised land. In fact, God told Moses, the land you're standing on here, it's holy ground. And it wasn't in that land just yet. And so those three took away this idea because you know what Israel thought. We don't need the Messiah. We don't need a Savior. We're in the land. We just need somebody to come in and get everybody else out of our land. Take care of the Romans. Take care of the Gentiles. Take care of the Samaritans. We're okay. Stephen addressed that head on and pointedly. The second issue he addressed was their faith in their law and their lawgiver, verses 37 through 43. We have Moses and we have Moses' law. And what Stephen says is it was all pointing to something else. Moses himself even said, there's a prophet after me likened to me. It's greater than me. But they believed the end all was the law of Moses and Moses himself. They didn't need anyone else, even the Christ. Stephen addresses that. Third sacred cow that he slaughters is their view of the temple and its holiness, verses 44 through 50. Starting with the tabernacle and eventually ending up in the temple, this house that God would build. And he said, listen, there's one greater than the temple. And in conclusion, what you did is you killed him. Now repent for that. So wait a minute, Wayne. If he addressed head on their view of the land, their view of the law, their view of the temple, and he told them they were wrong, he told them they killed Jesus, what's humble about that? Because I think we need to understand and realize that humility in speech is not limited to attitude and demeanor, but also to content. When we say what needs to be said despite the fact of how it might be received, that's humble speech. Now, it needs to be said with the right demeanor and the right attitude and the right right disposition, absolutely. But sometimes things need to be said. And if all of our speech, all of our interaction and communication with one another is rallying the troops, is telling everybody we're okay where we're at, doing what we're doing, believing what we're believing... When there are things that obviously need to be addressed, there's nothing humble about that. That's self-serving. Preachers struggle with that. I, I can tell you, front of the line, we struggle with it. What are we trying to do? I, I, I do this sometimes because it's the world I know. But the world of preachers and in preaching, 
selecting what we're going to deal with and what we're going to cover is an extremely delicate and difficult balance to maintain. Because we need to know the fundamentals. We, we need to understand the difference between the church that was built by Jesus and every man-made institution that's come along since then. We, we need to know the difference. We need to know why it is we assemble and do the things that we do. Why don't we partake of the Lord's Supper? Why don't we see an instrument here? All of those things, they need to be addressed. They need to be handled. We need to know why baptism is important and why no man gets into Christ outside of, of that submissive act wherein we contact his blood and are forgiven. But sometimes we, we can be pushed and called and prodded to deal only with those things to the exclusion of some things the church might need at the moment more than they need that. Now, I realize saying this, probably going to be mis misunderstood or taken wrong, and, and, and I'm fine, we'll talk afterwards. I, I don't mind that at all. But it's not humble to simply rally the troops. Preachers can get amens. Not quite as many maybe here as in some other places, but we can get amens. It, we can. But if we come and sit and listen to the Bible being taught, and we believe everything we've already been taught, and we don't learn anything new, there's no growth. And so sometimes Bible class teachers and preachers have to handle matters that are difficult. It has not been enjoyable, and it has been the most nerve-wracking couple of weeks of my life to go live online and talk about race issues in our country and in the church. But a discussion has to be had. We've got to talk about it. And sometimes in the wake of those big events and of those things in our country that the church struggles with or should be leading the way about, we revert back to, well, let's preach on baptism this week. Because we'll all agree on that. Let's unify. Friends, sometimes we need to be stretched and pushed and challenged. And there should be humility in that kind of communication. Or else we're not going to grow. And we need to. Think about what Stephen could have said in Acts 7. Let me tell you about those Gentiles and how terrible they are. Let me tell you about how God has delivered his people and blessed Israel above any nation on the earth. You know what? All of those things were true and he would have gotten amens. He would have left those people, lost where they were at. Because they had killed the Christ. And even without regard for his own life, Stephen preached what needed to be preached. That's humility, friends. Humble in speech. Number three, he was humble in death. He was humble in death. He was more like Jesus in his death than maybe any man who's ever lived. At least as it's described in Scripture. There are two descriptions found in him. Look at, look at verse 59. I know we've we, we fast-forwarded all the way to the end of the story. They rushed on him to kill him, and when they were stoning Stephen, he called the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Where did he get that? Remember what Jesus said on the cross? Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, Into your hands I commend my spirit, and then he breathed his last. He was like Jesus in his death. Then in verse 60, the Bible says that 
as he cried out, he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where did he get that at death? But from the words of Jesus, when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A man more like Jesus in his death, maybe than any man on the pages of Scripture. Did it matter? Did it make a difference in Stephen's life? Was he a man exalted? Now, we've already looked at those earlier instances. His legacy, his name, his introduction in Scripture, how he was a man exalted. But there's an interesting tidbit of information that's sort of thrown in to this story. The Bible says in verse 58 that as they began to stone him, that they laid aside their coats or their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then Saul watched and heard a man with the humility of Jesus die at his feet. Then we learn in chapter 8 that they're scattered because of persecution and Saul is leading the charge. And then in chapter 9 we see Saul's conversion. And there's a statement that's made from the Lord to Saul when he says it's hard to kick against the goads. I don't know. To be honest, I don't know if there's a direct connection between chapter 7 and chapter 9 in that statement. But the idea of kicking against the goads would be to, as an animal kicks back against that which is driving him, that it causes more harm than good. That, that every time it kicks against what's going on, it, it's reminded of who's in charge. I wonder. Saul was a logical man. Read, it, read his letters in the New Testament. He understood by the time the book of Galatians was written, the purpose of the law, the purpose of Israel, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Christ. He figured all of that out. I don't know that he left the the, the stoning of Stephen without another thought. I wonder if he struggled with it. And he saw a man full of grace and full of power and full of wisdom, a man with the face of an angel being killed with trumped-up charges. And it bothered him. And he kicked against that. And he mulled that over. And he struggled with that. And then when the Lord came, the time was exactly right. Because what had been planted by the humility and exaltation of Stephen helped to change the the heart of Saul, the one who held the coats of those who killed him. Something about that example. So did it change the world? Sure, we have one day in his life. The day he stood tall, the day he died for the Lord. But his legacy lives on till to now. And if, if we want to be exalted, it's not about making a name. It's not about rallying the troops. It's not about being number one. It's not about being the most popular. It's about being the most like Jesus. Just like Stephen. Is that the choice that you've chosen today? Is that the life that you live? Or are you seeking exaltation in some other way? If you are, friends, make a change. Do something different. Be something different than that submit to Christ share in his sufferings and his death in the waters of baptism be raised to walk a new life of humility in him honoring him with each step if you haven't done that do that today and we're here to assist you in that process if you'll come while we stand and sing